This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that, well, wishes it had the market power of Facebook or Google. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, the doctor, Dr. Nirvan Mahanti. How are you, buddy? Good, man. How are you? I'm very, very well, thank you. Turns out, uh, for better or worse, we're not Facebook, we're not Google, but both of those companies are in the news as we record this on Thursday morning, the 18th of February. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about a whole slew, mate, of earnings. We've got so many earnings to try and get through. We'll do our level best to hit the highlights and the lowlights as they come up. There are not many lowlights, actually, this, uh, this earnings season, which is probably worth talking about in itself. Um, we will, of course, if we get time, try and dip into the full mailbag. But uh, without further ado, what do you reckon we get straight into it? Let's do it. I know I normally have a tangent at this point, but I'm going to I'm going to make myself stop and I'm going to just get straight into the news. Let's do it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, mate, let's start with Facebook and Google. As we record this on Thursday morning, the 18th, as I say, um, it's a it's a fascinating time to be a media slash kind of big media company, big distribution company, big platform company watcher. The reason I'm using so many different terms is that's kind of what this whole thing hinges on. So if you haven't caught up with the news yet, we've seen that Channel uh, 7 West Media, so they own Seven Network and the West Australian. We've seen Nine apparently uh, enter into deals with Google. We've seen the ABC and The Guardian almost agreeing to terms with Google. News Corp was reported this morning to have done a deal. At the same time, Facebook has this morning unilaterally, the channel got about 84 different notifications on my phone when I woke up this morning, saying that Facebook has taken the exact opposite approach. Now, Google hasn't confirmed, I think, any of the amounts being paid. Maybe the Seven West ones confirmed, I can't remember. So the others are, are not disclosed at this point. Facebook taking the exact opposite approach, saying, you know what, you guys can all get stuffed. We're having no Australian news on Facebook, and no Australian news can be shared with international viewers. This is pulling down the shutters. These are very different, very, very different approaches. Now, let's break this back a little bit before we get into the, the so what's. Uh, we should say the government is, is planning to, has decided to, has announced, they were going to make these platform companies. And again, we might, you, you, I don't know if you agree disagree with the classification, this is kind of the nub of the problem. But the government was going to force these companies to basically pay the news agencies to use their content on their platforms. If Google threw up a, a Sydney Morning Herald article, if Facebook served up a seven video, um, if Twitter threw a, a Guardian article up there, they were supposed to, or, or the government was going to make them, share some of the revenue they gained, either directly or indirectly, with the publishers themselves, being, as I said, the likes of Nine and Seven and ABC and The Guardian and, and The Telly, um, the Australian choose your, choose your preferred platform. Um, that was the threat. And so Google originally had said, like, what's it, we're going to pull out, and they kind of backtracked on that. Facebook were pretty quiet, and now they said they're pulling out. There's, there's a whole lot of kind of so what's here, mate. The first, of course, look, you know, it, it's a big deal for the society, the 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 ability for media to be transmitted around the place, to be made available um, is one question. The, the power of global players as opposed to local players is in the mix here. Uh, obviously, companies like News Corp, Nine Entertainment, Seven West Media, um, you know, these are listed businesses that obviously have, you know, share price that are impacted by these things. So there's kind of, I, I mean, this is one of those, we could talk about 45 minutes on just this alone and, and never get finished with it. But I won't, I won't ask you any particular question. I'll just kind of say, how do you feel? What do you think when you see, on one hand, Google doing a deal, on the other hand, Facebook pulling out? Um, just any reflections you got, mate, on any any of those topics from any perspective? Hit, hit us with them. 
Okay, so first I'm going to define some things, at least the way I understand how this <laughs> right. thing is, because the, the definitions are very important. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, which, so the, the point really is, so suppose, um, you know, so Google, for example, if somebody searches for some news yep. or some item, let's say they search for BHP share price, and, um, you know, Google's crawler has trolled, uh, crawled around the web, and mm. it has found a relevant article about that, say, written on, uh, on, on, on let's say, the financial review. Right, yeah. it would then basically have a link to it and some snippet of that content if yes. it has access to it, and and then that's that, right? Yep. And then the user basically clicks on that, mm -hmm. which if it is a, if behind a paywall would actually take them to the paywall, or a certain number of free articles would take them to a certain number of free articles. In other words, right, exactly. it's basically a discovery mechanism for media, mm -hmm. right? Media content. What the legislation, in my opinion, is basically saying is that for the fact of providing you a platform, and, and so in other words, for the fact of providing, for the reason, for providing a platform for media <laughs> yep. to be distributed, yep. um, the, the distributor actually has to pay. Right. So in other words, because Google allows you to find the article on the Sydney Morning Herald, for example, they're now going to have to, or they're going to have to under the government regulation. We don't know whether that will end up actually happening or whether these payments will circumvent that. But in any case, as you say, the legislation and certainly the government rhetoric was designed to require payment by those people, the Facebooks, the Googles, the Twitters, to provide a link through and some of that content. Right. So uh, I think this is to some extent uh, basically saying that you know, if anybody builds a platform for aggregation of some form, I mean, here's the thing. So the what Facebook is basically saying, well, we don't need to include those links. Yeah. And Google is saying, fine, we'll include those links. <laughs> and we'll pay something for them, uh, exactly. And we'll pay something for it, right? That's not nothing. The numbers being paid have been $30 million for seven and $30 million for nine, I think, are the numbers I've seen so far. So it's relatively cheap. Yet. It's relatively yeah. cheap. So here's the thing, right? If I were a company, I would actually flat outright refuse to pay. <laughs> and which I would, is what, I would just, what Facebook's done, right? Uh, I, is, and, yeah, and I would basically. So, so I think so I think there's philosophically there's a couple of issues with this. Mm -hmm. One is at least, and this is what I think. I think it is. Uh, I think at at one level, um, we can say that this this legislation is designed to prevent or to to um, encourage local journalism, right? Yes. But we know. <laughs> that the local uh, local outfits have fired all the journalists that they could. Uh, they've uh, 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 <laughs> retrenched almost everyone that they could so that their profits can go up. Right. They have then hired freelancers so, they, so that the freelancers don't have to pay anything. Uh, mm -hmm. And then basically print those and they want to make mo money off digital, right? Uh, and they have subscriptions to make money off it. So it's not that, um, you know, if this is made as a story of saving local uh, news dissemination, then that is completely, I think, bogus. <laughs> <laughs> at least in my opinion. So uh, this is really about just, you know, basically helping um, business models that are in, unable to cope with change, right? Because you could make the argument, I mean, Facebook's argument would be, and you know, I, you know what, I actually do not like like the whole idea of Facebook, actually, it makes makes my blood <laughs> warm. Uh, uh, but on this one, I, 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 I,
But this is not, not easy. And, and, and of the two, I probably dislike Facebook. So I don't use Facebook products at all. But I think Facebook is batting on, Facebook is basically saying, well, you know what? Like, I mean, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, why do people use Facebook? They come and, you know, chat with each other. People are, you know, exchanging uh, random photos uh, on Instagram and things like that. Or, or people are doing some shopping on they could be fine without the news being distributed to them. Right, and we right. just don't have to be the, the, um, the, the showcase for the news. Here's the other thing I think with this legislation completely misses, right? Mm. If the fact that links are provided are actually helping people discover those news items, helping right. people actually go to the sites and helping grow digital subscription. I mean, there's a bunch of people who are going to actually you know, have digital subscriptions to these things and a bunch of people who are not going to have digital subscriptions to these things. The, the other thing that is worth remembering here in this debate is, is it, you know, it becomes very much like you know, big tech versus our government, our democracy versus yes, big right, tech right. and all that nonsense. It's all complete nonsense because there are various packages for news, you know, um, uh, for news aggregation. So there's like, there's Google News, which is like a paid version, which is like Apple News Plus, right? Mm -hmm. Well, a bunch of providers have decided that they are not going to sign up to things like that, right? And fine, but you can't have it both ways. You don't want to sign up. <laughs> you want links that are linking, helping you attract traffic to pay for it. I mean, this is bizarre. Uh, this is, in my opinion, a classic case of, you know, this is this is equivalent of what I call the QE equivalent for newspapers. <laughs> it, it, this, this is basically preventing the demise <laughs> of business models that are basically yeah. not going to work yeah. by some number of years. Yeah. Right. And that's really what it is. And, and you know, Facebook has basically calculated a thing that it doesn't really matter. And Google has probably figured out that if I pay pennies, then so it's probably OK. <laughs> that's yeah. right. uh, and, and, and maybe here's the thing, right? There's real competition. Actually, if you think about it, mm -hmm. like I don't use Google search at all. I use right. Bing. Right. Right. Uh, Bing's going to find that too. Well, but that's the thing, right? Bing basically said, I'm happy to pay. And, right. and in fact, Bing is probably waiting that if Bing leaves, uh, sorry, Google leaves, Bing yeah. can actually become the de facto uh, right. provider. So, right. so Google probably weighed up the options and said, oh, we've got some competition <laughs> who's willing to fill the gap. So maybe we'll pay. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, exactly. Is, it, is that really uh, the thing about, is that, is that give you some sense, just to take it back to the companies themselves, the fact that Facebook are like, well, stuff you, we can survive anyway. And Google is saying, actually, we we probably can survive, but gee, we'd rather not have to have that fight. Uh, that, to me, to some degree, actually talks about the, the different competitive positions of those two companies. Facebook is dominant in a way that is so integrated with people's lives, it's betting that people won't leave. Google took the other approach and said, well, hang on, we kind of are pretty integral, but people could change search engines pretty quickly. There's, there's an argument to say that talks about the competitive positions of those two businesses in their own markets. To, to well, some extent, it, to some extent. So here's the thing, right? I mean, to, to take this further, I would say that people legislating these things have poor understanding of, um, you know, market monopoly behavior, right? And disruption in the market, in technology markets. Effectively, in technology markets, the, the thing that is dominant today is never actually displaced with another thing that looks like it that is going to be dominant tomorrow, right? Basically, there's a shift in platform behavior, a shift in usage behavior that causes the disruption, right? Yeah. You had telephones, 
which was, you know, AT&T was very dominant, right, which exactly, then yeah, got yeah. replaced by, you know, yeah. uh, was sort of dominant, but the government had to come and break it up in the US. But I mean, I would argue that they didn't have to do that because eventually they would have been cell phones which have dis disintermediated um, AT&T. Mm -hmm. uh, now we have smart home and smart home platforms and those would be disintermediated by something else. Yeah. Expect it, right? And, and, and so the dominance is only dominant for a period of time until they miss the boat on whatever that technology is, right? Did AT&T famously have the first smartphone? I can't remember. What was the ad they had that they kind of said, here's the new thing coming? Was it video phones well, or something? The, it was just one of those weird They had the first where... cell phones, right? Or the right, first cell there phone. Yeah, the first huge yeah. cell phones. And, you know, and we, I think in some movie, uh, Michael Douglas has this huge, you know, thing that looks <laughs> like, Street, yes, um, exactly. yeah, it, it, that looks like this brick that he's carrying around trying to call people, yeah. right? So, yeah. I mean, my point really is that, I mean, uh, the, ignoring sort of what actually happens <laughs> and trying to impose stuff on it is just, it's, it's basically another form of, in my mind, it's just another form of quantitative easing. That's basically what's happening uh, here. And, and I think, you know, so one party says, I don't care. Another party says, well, you know, uh, fine, I'll, you know, I'll throw some pennies here and, and you know, and, and the beggars can basically pick it up, right? As I said, if it was about journalism, then all the journalists that have been fired last year, the two years ago, uh, wouldn't have been fired, right? <laughs> and uh, if that was the case, ABC's budget wouldn't be slashed every year. Yeah, I mean, right, you know, exactly. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. ABC's budget gets slashed, right? Yeah. So, so that, that's the reality of it. And, it does sound uh, a little bit like an outsourcing of the cost of media production, right? If you think about it, like, rather than government saying, we'll pay for it, or listeners have to pay for it, or the model's going to die, they look around going, hey, if we get those billion dollar companies over there to pay for the media, then we can actually support the local industry, yeah, cost us nothing, cost them nothing, everyone's a winner, at least locally. Yeah, well, if that was true, right? If that was mm. going to work, then that was fine. Mm. This is actually basically saying there are shareholders of these media companies. If we yeah. can extract some money from those guys, then these, right, right, the, yeah, the shareholders right. of those companies can be, you know, well off yeah. for some time. It has got nothing actually to do with media production or mm -hmm. with, with news production or it's got mm -hmm. nothing to do with you know local news generation or it's got nothing to do with uh, you know hiring more uh, you know competent journalists you know everybody loves a you know a, a, uh, a great investigation everybody loves a q a um yeah you know, you know on abc <laughs> but, but you know it's not about more of that it's basically just about we're trying to transfer some some dollars from <laughs> one company to another right, company right. and let's yeah. see if we can do that to help you know yeah. That's not the job of, um, of you know, government of trying to transfer corporate profits from one end to the other, or corporate revenues from what I mean. I don't know what purpose it serves. It doesn't serve any. It doesn't create innovation. It doesn't help make um, you know the existing landscape more competitive. So, uh, anyways, I think it's it's all very interesting. Um, you know, I, th I think when you have to do that, it sort of talks more to. Uh, the the sector that needs help than anything else. Yeah, exactly. I gotta say, the media company shareholders are probably pretty happy after, particularly for Seven West shareholders, it's been a really tough couple of years. I, I reckon they'd be uh, rubbing their hands together knowing there's some, some money coming their way courtesy of the big platforms. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And again, you know, I feel, I feel good for them. Uh, but this is not a long-term solution because yeah. every, what, what I think is interesting about the legislation 
attempted towards big tech is again, I think, as I said, one, people forget how big tech gets disrupted. Mm-hmm. Um, and the bigger the opportunity, somebody's going to try to disrupt them, right? And, in, and they're going to disrupt them in a different way, right? A classic example is, you know, Shopify is making a goal for Amazon, but it's not making a goal via the way Amazon went after mm-hmm. Walmart, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't work that way. You have to go, you have to find another go around to, to make a case, right? Um, so that's what's going to happen with big tech as well. And there's going to be something else that's going to be big tech um, that's going to replace the current generation of big tech. That's, that's I think, uh, n- number one. And n- number two is that when legislation is created, actually, like the the privacy legislation out of Europe, you know, GDPR, I'm, I mean, I'm a huge supporter of privacy, but what does legislation has actually done has mm-hmm. it has made it hard for small companies to actually comply because the 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 owner you know the overhead for complying is just high right and it's easy for a big corporation like google or facebook to comply and find workarounds mm-hmm. to to the legislation so you know it's yeah, it's all very interesting it is indeed. I look, as, oh, I was going to say as an independent observer, I do own a small number of Google shares. Trust me when I say what they do or don't pay. The Australian media landscape is going to make no difference to my returns over the next 10 years. But uh, so I'm not I'm a completely unbiased, not completely independent. But I, I'm going to say part of me is, as a business watcher, is kind of, you know, a little bit pleased that one company's paying, one company said get stuff because it really gives us one of the things you don't get very often, which is a real-life test case, right? At some point, we'll see whether it's going to hurt Facebook or not to not stop providing Australian news, whether it's going to change the way Google does business to provide payment and provide specific Australian news. It really kind of opens up, to my mind at least, you know, a, a really, it's not exactly a, a pure, um, you know, natural AB test because there are different different iterations, customer bases, uh, different ways you get to that content. But it's still pretty cool to be able to see one who says no, one who says yes, and then just basically watch this unfold. It's um, as as a business watcher, a kind of a, a cool outcome. If you had to place your chips, mate, where would you put them? Does 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 Facebook fold eventually and let news back in? Does Google end up paying through the nose something they're not getting value out of? But they simply both just provide different things. What does Twitter do? Um, really, just a fascinating combination of of potential outcomes here. Where would you where would you put your chips? Well, it's hard to, I mean, it's hard to know. Like, I think looking at what Facebook's business model is, I think mm-hmm. it makes no difference to Facebook in terms of, you know, mm-hmm. um, whether or not news is shared. Like that is not where their bread and butter is. So they're basically yeah. um, uh, made the call that they're a, they're a, <laughs> they're a social platform, right? Yeah, so people interact yeah. with each other yeah. and, uh, you know, you can restrict stuff. So I think it doesn't matter to Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, and it matters to Google. So I think that's why Google is, you know, Google wants that, you know, their CEO value, I guess, mm-hmm. of being able to surface the pages that people may be interested in, uh, mm-hmm. even if it has to pay for it. Um, you know, it's going to put that in the bucket of um, what it calls uh, traffic acquisition cost, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, Google pays Apple for traffic acquisition yeah, yeah. cost, right? So, I mean, this is effectively Google paying um, right, media exactly, companies yes. via the government for traffic yeah, acquisition. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it's basically a cost that they're going to write off like that, and mm-hmm. it's probably okay for them. Uh, so I, I think again, I don't know. Like I, I don't think um, Facebook has any reason to mm-hmm. uh, to come and meet them because their their system doesn't work that way. Their yeah. platform yeah. It, it doesn't work. Um, it, you know, it's not an active search platform, so to speak, right? Whereas Google, when you go to Google search, it's an active search. You, you're actively seeking information, whereas Facebook basically tailors information right, right. for you. Exactly. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah. you know, uh, one is a pull method, another, you know, another is a push method. 
in a push mill mm-hmm. they can decide whatever they want to push to you effectively right i mean you know yeah, it seems like yeah. you're deciding what you're going to get but so I, i don't think facebook would fold would be my guess okay um twitter i don't know like i mean twitter is all about mm-hmm. news so i mean twitter might <laughs> have no choice but to say like you know okay i want to be able to um you know but actually it'll be very interesting if twitter says no and and then basically says you can't you, they wouldn't li- allow linking to any um struggling media site actually that would exactly, be, yeah. in my mind that would be super interesting as you're yeah, yeah. saying uh no well maybe twitter twitter is below the under the radar here nobody cares what twitter <laughs> is it's, it's it's not it's not the villain uh that that the other two are made out to be right so maybe and, that, and that's kind of the thing right like i think there is something and this is it goes back to me we've on on off a little bit we won't spend too much more time on this but you know the likes of the ubers and the airbnbs effectively got around local laws in a whole lot of different jurisdictions by being too small to worry about until they were too big to ignore And, and I've got to say to some degree, like I'm not, I'm not crying poor for Facebook and Google, they're going to be completely fine. Um, but think about Twitter or say LinkedIn, for example, or other platforms where you might otherwise share news content that are kind of that B and C tier in terms of, you know, use, usefulness, uh, usability, number of users, all that kind of stuff. I mean, if you and I started, you know, docandscott.com as some sort of social network, I dare say we'd get away with sharing, you know, articles from the news for a pretty long time until someone came and knocked on the door and said, you've got to start paying for that stuff. There is something of that big enough to big enough to tax big enough to regulate um you know i do wonder you know does whatsapp get get hit with this does instagram i guess maybe as part of facebook gets hit with it um but it, it is fascinating to kind of work out where those lines start and stop and who you know parla the right wing social network does that have to meet the same criteria i mean it's there are so many of these things that and maybe to your earlier point so bloody hard to regulate at a, at a local if local national if that's not an oxymoron level um you know how do you work out who who gets stamped on and who gets allowed to get through on this one yeah i mean it's very very hard which is why i you know uh, well i, I think that that's the that's the issue right i mean it's very different mm-hmm. this is these are sort of things that you can't legislate yeah exactly that that easily these are sort of things that are very difficult uh yeah 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 for sure to, uh, to legislate largely because there's a lot of complexity in technology and how technology evolves right and the legislation yeah. is never going to evolve with how the technology is going to evolve Yeah, right yeah. um so i mean you know again uh, i'm always a proponent of saying that you know don't try to uh, <laughs> don't try to uh don't expect taxes from right right from from corporations to uh, drive whatever agenda mm-hmm. you have to drive you know you can mm-hmm. drive your own agenda um expecting innovation to happen uh, sort of seamlessly but uh, anyway, yeah, so, nice. i mean it's all interesting i think Certainly is, mate. Certainly is. Let's move on, though, because uh, we've got so, so much else to get through. We've got some more time that we should, but it's just, it's just fascinating from a, a public policy perspective and the implications for a whole lot of stuff. These are our, our new town squares. They have been for a while, but someone charge rent for those town squares, to, to horribly torture the metaphor, um, is something new, and we'll see how that rolls out. Mate, speaking of town squares, one shop that was in most town squares is Coles. Uh, they were out during the week. They are yet another retailer we've got some more we'll talk about who have delivered really strong earnings growth profits up 14.5% um phenomenal levels of growth over sales actually 14.5% phenomenal levels of sales and profit growth and i've got to say look i you know if if you told anyone that retail be one of the big winners of covid i think you would have you know it would have been a real surprise for most people even then though even if you accepted that I wouldn't have expected that supermarkets. I mean, it kind of makes sense if you think okay, well, fewer people eat out, so they cook at home or they, you know, buy stuff and enjoy it at home. In hindsight, it's easier to see. 
But man, it's a, you go a long way to get double-digit sales growth from a supermarket in normal times. Um, interesting to see they not only had great results, but uh, the CEO there already started to say, hey, we might have some issues if you guys don't reopen the borders. How do we keep growing unless there's more people coming into the country? Uh, it sounds already like they're, I won't say making excuses, but they're certainly reminding investors that uh, the good times can't last. Yeah, like, I mean, none of this is surprising, right? I mean, there's, there's uh, you know, stimulus that's almost like, what, 20% of GDP. Yeah. Um, you know, there's free money flowing in um, into the system. There's, there are less ways in which people can spend it, right? Mm-hmm. For a period of time, people couldn't even go to restaurants. Like, people can't, exactly. you know, people can't go, um, you know, you can't really go interstate holiday and forget about mm-hmm. going about overseas holidays, right? So there's, there's a whole bunch of expenses that people... The, you know, my biggest indicator for how the economy um, is in sort of what I call the fake zone is what I call the dog price index. Um, <laughs> the price of puppies have have gone through the roof, really right? Have. And and I would yeah. call I would call the economy normalization <laughs> when the, when the reality is going to hit is when unfortunately the you know a lot of puppies are going to be left back at you know either the pound or at shelters or whatever uh because people who have taken these puppies are not going to be able to care for the or because you know they wouldn't have the time or they want to go you know overseas or they want to go somewhere and they can't take the puppies so i I think the dog price index is going to basically a puppy price index (laughs) is going to basically tell us right now the puppy price index is at pretty much all-time highs which correlates with uh what i called uh, almost dead businesses share prices being at all-time highs. When the puppy price normalizes, the the price of almost dead businesses will also normalize. I, I, you should you should trademark the puppy price index, mate. You should start producing that. Get people to pay your fortune for it. You could be the new the new uh, economist, the new Shane Oliver, the new Warren Hogan, the new whoever. Well, uh, the puppy the price indicator. index, mate. <laughs> we will get some other price index in a minute, by the way, which is huge. Uh, just, just to absolutely clarify, it was net profit up 14.5% for Coles. Here's the quote for, from Stephen Kane, the Coles CEO. Whilst people might be still working from home, that's already in the numbers and we're about to cycle that. That will no longer be a growth driver. Australians staying at home has offset the lack of tourists and a lack of immigration, but it won't do that going forward because it's a cumulative effect. If that goes on for a period of time, that becomes a headwind of scale. From March onwards, there are significant headwinds facing the whole supermarket sector and other sectors as well. That was a quote in the AFR from, from Stephen Kane. Um, maybe we should have to start paying for news. We had to be careful about quoting stuff these days. It's a, it's just a fascinating one, man. I think it's, you know, again, a reminder that these 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 growth rates, he's absolutely right. We will see a whole lot of businesses. We've talked about this before with discretionary retail, but um, the same also with, with consumer staples. We will see a whole lot of businesses start to cycle these numbers. In fact, we're recording this on the 18th of February. Tomorrow, the 19th, is actually the one-year anniversary of the all-time high for the ASX, uh, if I remember right. I'm pretty sure that's true. I think February 19th was the high and March 23 was the low from memory of the last 12 months. So we are literally uh, on the doorstep. And as our listeners listen to this, the market will have closed on the 19th of Feb, and we absolutely will start cycling all of those things. It'd be fascinating, by the way, if you look at some 12-year, uh, so 12-month highs in about a month's time, most companies should be the 12-month high because the 12-month low will be March 23, and that's another reminder, really big tangent. But when you look at any, any numbers comparing with anything, the starting and ending points matter a heap, right? You could Your shares could have gone nowhere in the last 11 months, but they'll be up probably 30% on, on the on the 12-month high, um, on the 12-month low, I should say, because March 23 will be that low for the market as a whole and probably for the vast bulk of companies, I, I would imagine, so worth keeping that in mind. Mate, um, it, it's 
it, it is interesting, and we, you know, the economy is going to face. It's not. I don't. I think headwinds are wrong um, because it, it, it suggests a, a distraction from something. I don't think you can necessarily say population growth through immigration is that, but it certainly is a lack of the growth drivers, a, a lack of positive growth drivers that we've perhaps seen in the past, at least for the next. I don't know. I guess six, twelve, eighteen months. We don't really know how long that takes. Um, you're not a retail investor generally, and we'll talk about some other retail stocks in a minute. But um, your thoughts on just thinking about that cycling for, for retail and other companies as we go through March, April, and May? My thought is that's too hard. You know, why, bother, <laughs> why, why bother with these companies that have like growth rate? Or, like, you know, here's the thing, right? COVID or not, I mean, these companies are not going to grow like more than like three, four, five percent, maybe five percent. Normally, yeah, that's right. I don't know. Well, on average, that's the expected yeah. growth. And five percent is probably I'm being I'm being too generous. <laughs> so you know, you can try to buy these at a PE of like seven or eight, and then sell them at a PE of sixteen. But if you buy them at a PE of 20, 25, 30, it's going to hurt at some yeah. point. You know, it's going to hurt. So yeah, I my my theory with stuff is. <laughs> I'm happy to take short-term pain, but I don't want long-term pain. Um, so I just stay away from what I call dead companies because, I mean, you know, they have a purpose, but one of the, the purposes is not to really make shareholders <laughs> um, richly rewarded. So, you know, I just, you know, I stick clear, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy for whoever holds on is making money, but you know, this is not a game I'm willing to. It's just too hard, too difficult. And, uh, you know, and it's uh, dependent on so many other things, you know. Yeah. So. If I was an investor, well, though, I'd keep an eye on, on this sector in the next 12 or months or so. I, there's, there's a possibility that for the investor who wants to go, I won't say bottom fishing because that implies terrible quality. These aren't, these aren't bad quality business. They're going to be great investments. Um, but I, I'm not so sure that if we see, see three or six months worth of negative sales and profit because they're cycling on, as Stephen Kane has said, such a great year in 2020 for some of these businesses. It's not entirely possible the market freaks out and sells these shares off, right? There may well be a once in a decade-ish opportunity to buy some of these businesses. Ironically, the first time around was March last year. Maybe it's two, twice in a decade. Maybe it's twice in two years. Um, but, you know, if some of these companies, if investors freak out because... I will talk about super retail in a minute, but if super retail can't grow year on year and it's camping sales because we went camping last year, we've already got tents and whatever else we buy, so we don't need more of them. It's very possible that sales are down March, April, May, June versus a year ago. And investors may well, I'm not, this is not a prediction by the way, but if they were to freak out and sell these shares off because these were all of a sudden dead businesses, as to use your phrase, um, it's entirely possible that they actually become, you know, attractively, attractively cheap in a way that gives investors an opportunity to go and buy some of these. Yeah, like I mean, you know, if they if they were selling at eight times uh, earnings normalized, and you know, uh, that, that might be worth considering. Like, uh, here's the thing: I think they never become cheap enough, in my opinion, to like it. Just is too. You have you have to have an opportunity to buy them, and mm. like, and it really, there has to be like panic selling, right? I mean, if there is panic selling, then only you have an opportunity to pick up something. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. Like, I mean. Yeah, maybe, well, I'll leave this game uh, to you. You, <laughs> you. you seem to be keen to play this game, so I'll let you play it. I, uh, you know, whenever I've tried it, it has never worked for me. So. Look, I'm not super keen to play it, but I, I just have a, I guess for those who own their shares, it's important to realise the market might get volatile the next 12 months if investors start to worry about what's going on and, and start to, to freak out about these growth businesses they thought they owned that are all of a sudden in decline. Um, and I think there probably is some opportunity potentially at some point to look at some of these if they get cheap enough, as you say. I'm not, not suggesting that investors should rush out and grab them uh, now or certainly maybe even then, but 
I, I just think if you think about you know the, the way the markets tend to operate, the, the cycles of optimism and pessimism, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see some of these discretionary retailers thrown out with the bathwater potentially if investors go into the hole, oh, growth's over, the, you know, profits in decline, sales are in decline, you know, um, there'll be a lot of there'll be a lot of stories written about the whys and wherefores, and if they get out of control, um, we might uh, we might see how that that plays out. But we'll see, we'll see. Motley Fool Money, financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, um, speaking of retail, we talked about super retail a little bit. We won't spend too much time on that. What I thought I just wanted to mention, though, and, and we've kind of talked about this before. We do it every six months because earnings season is every six months. But yesterday, super retail came out with some really, really strong results. And so shares were down, of course. Um, we saw the re- the travel companies come out. Webjet's total transaction value was down, I think it was more than 90%. Again, is it surprising? No. Sales down, it went from a, from a profit to a loss year on year. Again, is that surprising? No. But what did... So what do shares do? They went up. <laughs> so it's just a reminder to investors that earnings season is expectation season. Uh, that if you can deliver a you know a loss from a profit last year, and your shares go up, or you can be super retail and deliver a great result and see your shares fall. Um, it's just a reminder that investors have already placed expectations on these companies uh, and their share prices based on what they already think will happen. And so many, many, many investors will ask us, "Hey, I thought the result was good. What's wrong with the shares? Why are they down?" Or that looks like a terrible result. Why are shares up? The answer is expectations. And, and that's one of those really fundamental things as you learn to be an investor and do it more often, you just have to remember you can't rely on it will grow, therefore shares will be up or it will decline, therefore shares are down. It's always a question of what did the market expect to happen? And as we always say, the outlook given by companies, it's fair to say, I think in this case, we are seeing some of that in effect I just talked about. You know, in, in theory, um, the future for travel companies in absolute terms on a, on a, on a P&L basis is better than the past because it doesn't get much worse than 2020. And in theory, someone like Super Retail that sold a heap of athletics gear through Rebel and a heap of camping gear through BCF um, in 2020 is probably not going to have the same 2021 as it had last year. And the outlook that companies give also gives investors a sense of, of how much they're prepared to pay. So I just wanted to, wanted to flag that. Um, it can be really super confusing. We get this question so regularly. Every earnings says we get two or three people ask the question. Um, I've got a couple border on that. We may or may not get to them, but I just want to kind of drag that out given what happened with super retail and with um, and with the travel companies this week. Any any thoughts on that? Any reflections? Well, I have nothing to add. Mate, um, let's go to another one, Domino's. Now, Domino's is a recommendation of ours at ShareAdvisor, which I'm pretty happy about. Uh, also, my biggest ever mistake as an investor. Uh, I've talked about that before. I didn't, you didn't do it again unless you want to make me dwell on it. Uh, but, uh, mate, they opened 131 stores in 26 weeks in the middle of a pandemic. I'm, I've got to say, like, I don't own shares myself. I wish I did. Uh, my own stupid mistake for not owning them. But, man, what a cracking result there. Same store sales are up 8.5%. You might say, well, okay, you'd expect that because we're all stuck at home. You couldn't go out to eat. You could either you know, make your own or, or get it from Domino's. So maybe that makes some sense. But total sales up 16%. 131 stores in 26 weeks, and they're planning on opening even more in the coming year. They did flag that the PL was helped by the fact they paid no executive bonuses and they're going to start doing that again next year. So again, one of those stories where the outlook matters. But shares are up 7% on the news. Hard to see any reason not to like these results, at least in my, my view, but maybe I'm biased because it's a recommendation of ours. What did you make of the Domino's story? Well, I think it's pretty commendable to have, you know, that many stores open during the pandemic. I mean, um, they probably benefited from, you know, stay at home and uh, yeah. pizza deliveries at, at home. But I mean, that's still pretty. Uh, I think, you know, what I find phenomenal is every time I think 
that you can't have more pizza stores? <laughs> it seems you can. <laughs> right, I, don't know I know. It's... Yeah, I so know. I think that is just, that just blows my mind. I mean, you know, I'm not investing in this yeah. company. And, yeah. But, but yeah, like, uh, I, you know, <laughs> many thousand stores back, I probably talked oh, to that, <laughs> uh, that, um, <laughs> you know, you can't, surely, that, you know, how much more pizza oh, can we man. have? Um, yeah, so I, I don't know. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. I mean, I, I will. I will mention the, the mistake I made only because it's relevant. Kevin, you mentioned it, but we we recommended Domino's way back in 2012. Uh, we made a 40% gain on it. And we recommended our members sell. Why did we do that in 2013? So eight years ago, because same store sales were declining slightly, and I asked myself exactly the same question you just asked, which is, how many more pizzas can they possibly sell? Now we sold the shares. I, I don't actually have the numbers here, thank God, so I can dodge this one. But I think it was about. Twelve dollars, I think they sold it for. Um, I can't find the numbers now; they're not that good. Uh, I don't have to. I don't have to be exact. We bought it for about eight. We sold it for about twelve, give or take. I say we bought them. We recommended them as a buy at eight. I recommend to sell about twelve. The shares now are over a hundred dollars, mate. I've been spectacularly wrong. Now I am pleased to say we did add it back to our scorecard in twenty eighteen. So our members have enjoyed most of the upside since, but there was a big gap in between about twelve and about forty uh, that we simply just completely whiffed on. That was the biggest mistake I've ever made because if I'd held those shares uh, on behalf of our members, that'd be a twelve bagger by now. A reminder that you know I I've said before, and I'll say again: be, be slow to buy and even slower to sell. Um, even though Domino's same store sales were declining, even though I was questioning how many more stores they could open, how many more pizzas Australians could eat. Um, I should have been in, in hindsight, and this is a lesson I learned and hopefully I've been able to apply since, that just giving it some time to play out is better than pulling the trigger too quickly. And certainly, as I said, happy, happy we bought them back or recommended them again in 2018. But geez, mate, I, I, haven't, I haven't even done the numbers. I should go back and check the store count back in 2013 and the store count today. But as I said, even that, 131 stores in the last half, more coming. They, of course, own Domino's Japan, Netherlands, France, Germany, as well as Australia and New Zealand. So this is a, a multinational business, and that was part of what I overlooked as well. Um, this is just, it is phenomenal. You know, Domino's pizza aren't the best pizza in the world, but the scale of effects of what they're doing um, is just really, really, really impressive. You've got to say it's hard to hard to overstate how great they've done, given, as you say, any reasonable person by all reports could have said, how much more growth can there be? And the answer was plenty and plenty more on top of that. It's been a, been a phenomenal result. Mate, I'm going <laughs> to... I'm reluctant to bring this up because uh, I, I, you have you have expressed a view in the past on CSL. Uh, that being said, if I want to go make myself a cup of coffee or go to the bathroom or, um, you know, just go and do something for 10 or 15 minutes, I, I could possibly uh, ask the question and, and then let you do your thing. But I, I won't. I'll hang around because I do care about your thoughts. Um, but I just I wanted to bracket a couple of companies, mate, because we saw in only today, again, Thursday the 18th, we saw reported results from both CSL and from Sonic Healthcare. Both these companies have had a spectacularly good last six months. CSL profits up 45% apparently on combination of COVID and flu vaccines. CSL, uh, sorry, CSL Sonic up phenomenally on the back of COVID testing. Again, not a surprise and equally, as we've said before, likely not going to be repeatable. Now we started this recording before the market opened, so I can't even tell you what market's done today with those company shares, whether they've looked at them and said, well, we expected that, so no big deal, or whether they've gone, wow, we, we kind of underestimated that. Either way, these are, these are one-off impacts. Um, I guess I'm, I'll, I'll let you have you go on CSL because I know you want to. But Sonic as well, um, an interesting business that has been able to scale well. I don't think we should take any points away from it from doing well during the pandemic. It was there, it did its thing, it's capitalised beautifully. But a little bit, it reminds me of Blackmore's during the Daigu years when a lot of that suitcase trade was going on. Should they have knocked it back? No. But the company and investors should have remembered that that was likely to pass and have planned accordingly. Blackmore's whiffed it, I hope. 
that both CSL and Sonic are prepared for what is a post-pandemic world where things should return to some sort of normal. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, yeah, you, you covered sort of the, the punchline. So the, oh, yeah, sorry, I mean, the punchline <laughs> is, <laughs> so the, the, whatever they call the securities business, which is basically the flu business, flu vaccine business, that's the one that was up, uh, up what, 40, 40%. And, yeah. you know, there was therefore a gross margin lift, which resulted in an earnings lift from that side. The other, the plasma business, which is relatively mature, yeah. uh, is up. Uh, you know, up single digits in revenue, I think, or maybe low double digits. And mm. but again, you know, there's operating leverage in this business. But I will, I will concede one thing here. Uh, so for the half year, uh, the the free cash flow. I'm just doing this computation on the top of my head. Free cash flow looks like 1.7 billion dollars. Okay. Um, That's a lot of money. You know, That's a start. $1.7 billion US uh, yes. half in the half year for 2020, which sure. when you compare that with um, 2019, uh, that's up a lot from about $600 million, right? Okay. So, you know, basically you, you have um, doubled. Top rate leverage at work uh, and a bit of uh, cyclical flu benefits. Okay. Yeah, yeah benefits. So you've doubled. So now let's assume, you know, my, my beef with uh, CSL is just this. Mm. Like, on average, its free cash flow has actually hardly ever increased. Like for the last maybe four years, its free cash flow is roughly flat at around 1.4, 1.5 billion. Maybe this year will be different because they've already <laughs> actually exceeded what they usually do in the whole year. So maybe this is going to be different and maybe this is a new normal. I don't know. But let's, let, let me give them the benefit of doubt and let's say that they generate $1.7 billion of free cash flow. Let me say that this, they're going to be able to generate exactly the same amount. Um, because they're going to have they're going to have the AstraZeneca Oxford um, you know COVID vaccine bump as well, right? Um, uh, for the ones that they're going to be selling here in Australia. So let's say that you double that, you get you. Let's say you arrive at a three point four billion dollar free cash flow. This is a what a hundred and forty billion dollar market cap business, maybe, um, right? Is it? Yep. Probably okay. some, somewhere in that. Yep. So, you know, give or take a bit, it's approximately, what, 110 billion US market cap because these numbers are in US dollars, US right? Dollars, yeah. So, you, you know, yeah. you're effectively paying, um, what, something like, you know, 35, 40 30, times yeah. free cash yeah. flow. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, which is not cheap, but it's just probably, you know, uh, on the higher side, considering that, you know, this might be a cyclic high for the and that's cash the hard flow, part, right? right? Yeah, right. is, it, is this new normal or is this the exception of the rule? When you're growing at that sort of rate, it's a meaningful difference. I mean, whether it's 30 times or 60 times, it's kind of a big deal. <laughs> if, if this goes back to normal, you kind of go, wow, I thought that was, if it doesn't, of course, and keep growing, then maybe there's an opportunity there, but it's a hard thing to do. And I guess, as you say, it's been really, really flat for a long time. It's tempting to think this is the exception rather than a new normal. Yeah, like my my thing with CSL is, you know, maybe CSL is top of the cream or whatever people want to think of it. And, you know, people love CSL because it's delivered good returns for them, right? My rule of thumb has always been that I want to just compare that with something like, you know, if you want to buy a mature, relatively mature business that is, you know, growing fast, um, mm -hmm. and then, you know, I'm going to compare this with something like an Apple. I don't know, I'm comparing with completely different industries and things like, oh, I'm going to compare with Apple or Facebook or Google. And, and then those good businesses will look dirt cheap compared to this one. So... Um, you know, and that's the reason for me, you know, like, and finally, my other point is really that the blood products business, they have a dominating business, but it is very much like a commodity business, right? Takeda yeah. also operates in that area. Um, 
flu vaccines, and you, we can say whatever we want to think about it. And there's, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of things about licensing here, here or not. But you know, Serum Institute in India produces more vaccines in a day than you know CSL produces in a month, right? Okay. So it's not hard to produce these vaccines that mm-hmm. have old technology. My question really is, what is the new IP that's being developed? Yeah. Being developed? Maybe there is something new here coming, and you know, new and exciting happening. So I, I don't know whether I would pay a premium for, mm-hmm. um, for you know, an substantial premium for uh, without certainty, right? For the, the you know the business, the, the bulk of the business is blood products business, and while it is you know a dominant business, it is blood products. Other people also do blood products, right? I mean, do you really want? And to it's got to be mature too, right? Like I think that's the other thing for me is if you look at CSL, you have to given the valuations you've talked about, you have to believe either the market will always pay well over the odds, which is possible, but it's a, it's a big it's a big guess slash bet, or that somehow it can find a way in some way, shape or form to create, invent, um, be the beneficiary of new blood products, technologies or treatments or uses or collections. And and given its massive size already, those new things have to be super meaningful and, and super contributing to some sort of growth to make this valuation look even half reasonable. That's right. And the other thing, you know, I worry about, of course, uh, I don't worry, actually, I don't worry about it at all because I'm not a CSL shareholder, so it doesn't really matter to me. So I, I don't worry about it at all. But, you know, here's the thing, right? Um, it, it's it, the Securus division or whatever it is called, mm. basically, you know, it's the old school vaccine technology. I mean, we, we have seen ample proof that the new school vaccine technology that, you know, the, the messenger RNA technology is like mm. miles ahead of the old school. So, I mean, what is there to say that the next year, uh, companies like um, Pfizer and Moderna are going to launch these mRNA vaccines for flu, which all of a sudden now makes this vaccine not so relevant or maybe less relevant or whatever it is, right? And I understand yeah. the issues with transportation and so on. So I, I think that's the, that's the sort of thing I would worry about. But yeah, like, I mean, you know, um, the, the, the gap accounting is always uh, funky, uh, how, you know, profits look there up, uh, you know, 30, 40, 50%. <laughs> And things like that. Um, yeah, totally. So, so my preference is always yeah. But I, I'll give them credit that you know their, their free cash flow yield uh, or you know actually looks more reasonable now. Yeah, that's and, right. And and, and and then it it would look on last year's numbers. Yes. And, and 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 you have to you have to assume right. That's that's the key question: is what happens from here. Yeah, and then that's the key question. So I do think the next half is going to be also good because mm-hmm. um, they, they, you know, they got to, they they should be benefiting from the orders for the COVID um, AstraZeneca mm-hmm. Oxford vaccine, right? Then and the next, you know, and maybe you know, going forward to the the benefit because maybe COVID vaccine or whatever variant of COVID vaccine we have is is, a, is an ongoing mm-hmm. thing. So I mean, mm-hmm. you know, again. Yeah, my concern is that you know, and has always been that you know this is a this is a, uh, I like to joke if that if that sort of multiple was awarded to Apple, Apple would be an eight trillion dollar company or something like that. <laughs> so, um, and I'm an Apple shareholder, I would love that. Um, <laughs> Maybe Tim Cook needs to work hard to work up that uh, the multiple mm-hmm. that they get, um, mm-hmm. you know, and then that will make me happy, and I'll be okay with CSL shareholders <laughs> getting um, a, a pretty premium multiple. But anyways, yeah, good results.
Yes, exactly. Mate, um, uh, Sonic as well had, had a really good one. Do you have any additional thoughts on Sonic? Uh, again, same sort of uh, question for me is, you know, what does this do for its business over what number of financial years? There's some value being created there, which is not nothing, right? Even if it goes back to normal, it's been able to have a one or two-year benefit from extra volume, extra value on that testing. That'll come, that'll recruit shareholders either as more dividends or retained earnings. It's a net, negative, a net positive no matter which way you look at it. The question, of course, is it seems obvious to me, and maybe I'm getting it wrong, um, maybe COVID testing hangs around for years, by the way. Maybe we, you know, this is a new new piece of business. It won't be done the same scale when have 40,000 people a day necessarily being tested. But, uh, you know, I, I'm tempted to think this is one of those things where we should be looking through the last couple of years to a more sustainable level of earnings. Do you agree or do you have a different perspective? I, I, I you know, I would be surprised if, you know, we, we 40, 50, 60, 100,000 people are being COVID tested, uh, you know, <laughs> each week or whatever it is, right? I mean, once you've started vaccinating people, you would not be, you know, testing at that scale. And if you are testing at that scale, then you've got bigger problems. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but, but yeah, like I agree with your point, right? That if you have been a shareholder in the past and you've held on to your shares, Mm. Um, you know, now is a good time to reap some of the you know record dividends or whatever they're paying. Maybe right. you know, I, don't know the, exactly. the, I don't know the valuations uh, of, of Sonic, so you know, mm-hmm. maybe it's a, you know it's something to think about. You know, maybe you want to take some profits, and you know, um, if you've held the shares and the shares look pricey to you, well, maybe you want to sell some, right? Again, I don't know anything about Sonic because I haven't looked at so Sonic doesn't interest me as much as as a CSL. I find CSL is a very interesting. Um, uh, use case or, or a case study of um, investor enthusiasm, right? And 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 therefore, like I mean, while the company's revenues have grown and profits have grown, the the multiple expansion has been phenomenal. <laughs> the share price uh, as well, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, a lot of the heavy lifting is actually being done by the multiple yeah, expansion, yeah. which is which is basically <laughs> uh, shareholder enthusiasm for it, right? And yeah, yeah. And and maybe that's a thing that you know there are a few. If 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 you are told as an investor or an investment manager that you have to go and find you know a top ten or top twenty or top fifty, whatever it is, right? You know, exactly. Find me. Uh, an above fifty billion dollar blue chip company with some growth, which is not a bank and not a miner. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, then, then you have like what you've got. Uh, yeah, there, yeah. uh, Telstra, I uh, actually Telstra yeah. is not even above fifty billion dollars, yeah. right? So I mean, the, yeah. this is <laughs> peculiar mandate um, uh, type um, manifestation where mandates have resulted in the multiples just going up. It's just crazy. But yeah. you know, you know, that's again. Such things can continue for a long time, as it has over true. the you know exactly right? exactly so, yeah. So I, I'm I'm not the one here to say that oh this is a you know a, you know this is this is a fine company this is a, this is a, this is a fine business. I disagree with the valuation by by a large multiple or, or a large factor, maybe a factor of two, maybe a factor of even three. But you know this is not a reason to short this company. There's nothing fundamentally flawed in this business. So you know it, it, it's just a quality evaluation um, point. Yeah, nice, mate. Um, speaking of uh, as we were the puppy price index, which I'm now I'm now going to put. Uh, Every, every time I see the, the, the abbreviation PPI for producer price index, I'm going to think of the puppy price index now. So it's your fault. Uh, if I get that wrong when I'm talking to the media, I'm going to blame you. Um, that being said, the other index we've seen recently is the used car index. And car sales had a phenomenal result just recently, um, this week, in fact. And largely that was a combination. Yes, new car sales are down. That being said, some new, some new car dealers actually run out of new cars. 
is also the reality at the moment. So um, things like uh, Hilux apparently and Lane Cruises are out of stock or not available, but also used cars through the roof. The average new used car price apparently according to car sales is up about 20%. This comes on the back, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but I saw an article speaking of Hiluxes, used Hiluxes apparently up 41.2%, one of the news outlets was reporting a couple of weeks ago. And car sales reporting that the time to sell a, new, a used car has fallen by 40%. Since the, oh, the last six months or so, it, it is, I mean, it's kind of one of those things where on one hand, is it reasonable? I guess. I mean, you maybe buy a new used car rather than a new car. I guess that makes some sense. Maybe there's more money left around. You talked about the, the size of the stimulus, like we're not traveling overseas. Maybe some of that's gone into cars. But I, again, in, in the, on the list of things that I didn't expect to see in 2020, a 20% increase in the price of used cars and a 40% decrease in the pace of sales, uh, as in, sorry, the, the time of, uh, of, of listing. So there was an in increase of, in pace of sales of 40%. Just a phenomenal set of outcomes. And look, great for car sales, great for car sales shareholders. I'm just stunningly surprised at the breadth and and reality of that. We're seeing the same thing, by the way, in some regional house price sales. I mean, in my area here, the time on market has fallen by about half as well. It has a whole lot of this ripple effect of COVID has really impacted in a whole lot of industries and a whole lot of ways, frankly, I didn't expect. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I mean, on the other hand, I mean, if you think about how the stimulus has worked and sort of the, you know, the fact that you can write off um, vehicles up to a certain price, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, this is a cause and effect, right? I, I don't know what the threshold was for writing off a vehicle immediately, right? But yeah, if you have a yeah. business and you want to write off a vehicle, uh, there was a certain price at which you could write it off. And therefore, that price became the price at which people would like to buy stuff, right? Yeah. This is uh, this is exactly a stimulus um, doing exactly what it is intended to do, basically saying, you know, people don't need a car or a new Hilux or whatever, but they're, because they think that they can, you know, it's the, everybody loves a tax write-off, right? If I can write it off in tax, it almost feels like I got it free, even though if I had to pay for it, I don't have no need for it. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah. so yeah. Um, you know, it's a, you know, maybe another way to put it is just foolish human behavior at work, um, you know, demonstrating. Um, so again, you know, when this uh, the sugar hit <laughs> of the free write-off <laughs> is taken away, yeah. or 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 when the sugar hit of the free write-off being in a burden. Um, to the the country's balance sheet becomes a burden for the country's yeah, balance yeah, sheet and it gets yeah. taken away. At, at that point, just these sort of things disappear. Also, I mean, you know, how often can you buy you know, a used whatever truck or a car or whatever it is? So again, not very surprising. Um, but again, as you would say, you can't. You know, you can't. Um, you, you you can't you can't assume that these things are going to continue at this rate. Mm -hmm. But you know, like used car sales should probably grow at like two percent, three percent, and even maybe even fall. Right when you think about the fact that new cars are coming out regularly with you know the price doesn't change. The price of Camry is probably the same as it was twenty years ago, and yet the safety, the speed, the efficiency is so much better. Um, in theory, should be putting downward pressure on used car prices, right? or at least staying some degree stable, maybe up a little bit, as you, as you rightly point out. But I don't know, even, even with that write-off, I still think you would have thought the people buying used cars would have put more used cars on the on the on the um, on the market that should have pushed the prices down rather than up. I still, I, I know you're saying not, you're not surprised. I I still am remarkably surprised. Again, I know it's true, and so it's easy to, to sort of say, well, I'm not surprised. But I guess I, I still. I'm a bit flabbergasted at the at the size of the change and the breadth of the change, 
given, as you say, even, even with that new car ride, if I would have said that would have pushed used car prices down because it would have flooded the market with used cars, certainly not the case. There's plenty of people charging an absolute fortune for the used cars and getting it from the look of it. Well, I, I think, like, I, I think it, you know, have, okay, say, let me rephrase. I'm surprised that it has happened. Right. But when I think about it, it doesn't seem surprising because there are probably thresholds in terms of, you know, what you can write off. Yeah, this is, right. These are all... Uh, these are all basically a function of mm-hmm. a stimulus action, right? And almost, that's why I like calling this, this entire economy is fake, <laughs> right? And when the fake unwinds, <laughs> we're going to find out what is true and what is not. So, uh, yeah. uh, you know, exactly as the, as the car sale numbers are fake or the, um, you know, uh, they're fake in the sense that they are not repeatable. They are, mm-hmm. they are one-time influenced by various things by direct stimulus impact. Yeah. And uh, the impact of stimulus unwinding is just equally unclear to mm-hmm. me as to what's going to happen, right? I mean, so... Again, I mean, it's, it's, it's all interesting. Again, it's great for uh, shareholders who have held and they probably get, you know, if you've got a special dividend, yeah, that's you, right. you should be very happy. Yeah, uh, yeah. Maybe if you think the shares are overpriced, maybe you should sell <laughs> uh, or at least sell some. Um, and, and that's how, uh, how mm-hmm. I, none of these things are what I call secular growth. These are not things that, right, you know, um, one expects long-term yeah. growth with. These are not driving, used car sales are not going to drive society forward. And, yeah, and yet, that yeah, there is there will be something. No, I think oh that and that's probably true, I suppose. So secular growth versus versus kind of economic economy improving growth are two probably different things, I imagine. The growth in gambling doesn't help society much either, but still happens. Um maybe there is a conversation at some other future point we should have about um uh, about those businesses that are likely to see the trajectories change. We've talked a little bit in the past, but maybe a bit of a recap, maybe even post earnings about the, those businesses and, com- and industries that have seen some degree, if not secular growth, at least um changes in their sort of secular growth paths because of, or maybe despite um, COVID-19, it's probably a conversation we can have at a different time. But let's finish off with a question from our mailbag because we like to do that. Before I do though, don't forget, if you're not yet a member of Motley Fool Share Advisor, you can join Share Advisor by going to fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast. I run that service with Andrew Leggett and a couple of other colleagues who contribute as well. Um, it is our flagship service. It's our longest running service. I'm pleased to say that it remains a market beating service after a very long track record. We're coming up on our 10th anniversary, not too far away, a few months away. So pretty excited about that. Pretty excited about the returns we've delivered. If you're looking for the best medium and large cap companies on the ASX that we can lay our hands on and you're hoping to beat the market, as I say every single time about all of our services, past performance is no guarantee and some stocks will go down as well as go up. Uh, But over time, we've done a pretty good job. We hope to continue to do that. And if you like the idea, you like the idea of Foolish Investing and you want to get a little bit more from us, you can join at fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast. All right, let's get to a question. This is a question we don't discuss all that often, but um, probably is because we are different style of investors to the average investor. But this is a topic and and an area that is super popular if our discussion boards and other things are any, any guide. I got a question from Andrew saying, Scott, love the pod and only fairly new to listening. So not sure if my mailbag question has been covered. I think we did a long time ago, mate, but it's one that comes up regularly and we always have new listeners, so it's always worth asking. Thank you for the question. I'm wondering about LICs, he says, or what are listed investment companies. I don't often hear them discussed and wonder wonder that if they're professional investors, why wouldn't we stick our cash with them and profit from their returns? Or is this just a simplistic view and running an LIC is more complex than it sounds? i.e. variability and profit, cost, et cetera. Keep up the great content. It's outstanding. Thank you, Andrew. Cheers, Andrew. 
Doc, good question. So listed investment companies, this originally was the only way pre-index funds to be able to access a broad swathe of the market and have someone else invest on your behalf on the market and a listed investment company. It's always been managed funds around since largely the dawn of modern economic times, but a listed investment company is what it says on the tins, listed. So it's on the ASX. It is an investment company, much like a managed fund. Um, but of course, it's all done in-house, or at least most of it is done in-house. Um, the businesses like uh, Argo, Affic are probably two of the big ones that people know. Milton Investment Corp is another one. There's a few around there. Mate, why shouldn't, or maybe should, our listeners invest in the LIC? You know what I'm going to do is I'm going to pass the question to you and you can answer. <laughs> <laughs> nice, but passing, I like it. That, that, uh, and that way I don't have to deal with, you know, I could, uh, you know, because I might end up saying something controversial like I usually do. <laughs> you wouldn't do that. <laughs> you would never do that. I'd so, that. So, so, so I'll let you do the, <laughs> you know, pick up the controversy this let time. Let me be controversial to you. Thanks very much. All right. So, um, and a really good question. Here's, here's the thing. So look, as I mentioned, LICs have their role in the past as ways of getting market listed so literally asx listed investments you can buy it with a three-letter ticker on comsec or you know whichever whichever broker you use so that they were super useful ways of being able to invest in getting a manager to invest on your behalf and what they tended to be and kind of still are if you look at Afic and argo and others they're kind of quasi index players now they won't like me saying that and i will clarify because it isn't exactly 100 true but largely they buy most of the companies, most of the large companies on an index, on the ASX, in different proportions, so they would argue, and, and with some validity, that they add their expertise to have a little bit more, a little bit less Commonwealth Bank, or a little bit more or less BHP. Um, sometimes they, don't, they might have two or three of the big four rather than all four, for example. So they are absolutely active investors, and they are trying to beat the market, and they do have a, or have had a role to play. They, they were really, you know, they, they tend to be conservative investments. And again, like all of these things, I'm talking generic generalities. There probably are more risky LICs out there, but the Affix and Argos, um, Affix is the Australian financial, Australian foundation investment company. It's it literally is about as boring as it sounds. And that was that was great. A lot of people just, you know, that was the index fund equivalent when there weren't index funds. Uh, and they had a really important role to play. They generally tend to be reasonably low fee because most of the fees are internal. They're not paying a separate fund manager, and they are structured as a company rather than as a fund. So there's some different differences in structures. I and these days, though, not necessarily a fan of that structure of investing. If you want to invest behind a fund manager who you think has and will continue to beat the market, then I guess, you know, go and do that by all means. If you want to buy your own stocks, do that. If you're not going to do either of those things, though, I think the, the best option is probably to buy an ETF at a super low cost and just get the market average return. Um, you know, if you have a view that, that this professional manager can and will keep beating the market, I guess, you know, by all means, if they, if they can beat the market after fees and you think they're going to keep doing that, then that's a better return than the market, so do that. But you've got to believe they're going to or have some foundation for that assessment. That's, again, the same with any fund manager. So I would I would bracket them with the fund managers rather than with the ETFs or with, with individual stock picking. Where it's problematic for me is that they tend to kind of shadow the index more or less as it with those with those small variances and that's fine they do a great job of doing exactly that so all power to them um but i just i think if you want an index style investment i just take the market return grab an asx 300 index and be done with it um if you believe they can keep being the market then i guess again invest with them if you want to but your question about their professional should we invest with them the average professional investor guess what after fees loses to the market in fact something like depends on what numbers you read, but somewhere around three quarters of fund managers lose to the market after fees, which sounds big and it's massive. It's not actually theoretically 
unreasonable or even surprising because if we say, okay, half investors beat the market, half lose, if we start with that broad assumption and there's, don't hit me up with medians and averages and means, guys, I don't want to hear it, but I, yes, there are differences. But let's assume half the market beats and half the market loses. Before fees, of the half that beat the market, when you take out their fees, that pushes a decent chunk of them back under the market average again. So it really is hard on average to beat the market as a professional fund manager and hard to invest in a fund manager that does that for exactly the same reason. So LICs are fine. If you invest, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be dragging you out of an LIC in a hurry. If you're in it and you liked it and you were happy and you're going to compound for years and keep adding, there are worse, there are many, many, many worse things to do than invest in an LIC. Uh, but if you want a broad, broad market exposure, I'd go with the lowest cost index fund you can find, generally a Vanguard 300 if that's what you're looking for, because um, you're not taking manager risk, you're not paying fees more than you absolutely have to, and a business like Vanguard is not for profit, so decent chance over time they, they lower their fees and return the value to you as a unit holder in that particular ETF, or as I said before, as what we do for a quid, um, try and beat the market by picking market-beating stocks. How'd I go, Doc? Did I uh, offend anybody? Is there anything else to add to that? I have nothing to add. <laughs> that's because you're letting me take all the flack. Thank you very much, mate. All right, that's <laughs> that is the end of this particular podcast. Surprise, surprise, we are going to be back for a special mailbag on Sunday. In the meantime, don't forget you can subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast. Now, stay tuned. This one changes a little bit. Through iTunes, yes, your favourite Android podcast app, of course, or this is where I normally say the Podcast One app, but the Podcast One app has been rebranded as a listener, L-I-S-T-N-R, no, there is no E. Go to the Listener app. We're now part of the Listener family. No change. That's simply a rebrand. Still part of Southern Cross Australia. Still part of the same group. But a brand new app has been released with some really cool features. Uh, we had a bit of a sneak peek. We couldn't talk about it until today, but now we can. Uh, really cool new app. So Listener, if you're looking for a podcast app, it also has things like radio streaming and a whole lot of other great content. L-I-S-T-N-R. Uh, we're not paid to make that plug, by the way, but they look after us. We're part of the family, so we thought we'd let you know it's out there. And, of course, if you like what we're doing, please find a way to give us a rating on Listener or anywhere else you get your podcast. Leave us a review. Leave us some stars, if you wouldn't mind. And, of course, don't forget to tell your friends as well. You can get a dose of Foolish straight to your inbox and some marketing from us by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll see you on Sunday with another dose of Foolish Insight. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.